I would like to make a few comments. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America. Because of the way this society is organized, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? It all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even fun. a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We are met here as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, to solve that problem. Welcome to the Pothole Problem Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Miller. I want to thank you for listening to this week's episode. And if this is your first one, welcome to the podcast. And if not, thank you for your continued listening to the show. This week's interview is Multnomah County Commissioner Jessica Vega Peterson. She's a Democrat who represents District 3 of Multnomah County. That's on the eastern side of Multnomah County. She is, in fact, the commissioner who represents the place where I live. So she is my elected official. I won't reveal whether I voted for her or for an opponent. And I'm going to be honest, I would have to look that up because I don't really remember. She's one of the many local and county elected officials who do a lot of really important work. And most people don't really even know what it is that the Multnomah County does. They are not aware of the activities of the county commissioners or even really pay a lot of attention to voting for them. That doesn't make it an easy, under-the-radar kind of job. In fact, that comes with all kinds of challenges. One of the things that we discuss in the interview is how national politics can, in fact, drown out people's attention to and concern for local politics, but that a lot of really important things go on at the local, county, and state level. Well, I won't tell too much about what she says and what I ask her about because that's what the interview is for, so I'm just going to get right into it. I'm sitting in the Multnomah County building with Commissioner Jessica Vega-Peterson. Thank you for agreeing to interview with me today. It's my pleasure. You are a county commissioner, and you had to get elected to get this position. What got you into elected politics in the first place? I ran for office for the first time for the state legislature. So I was in the Oregon House of Representatives for four years, and then I made the change to come over to the Multnomah County Commission. Um, So I ran for office in the first time in 2012. I decided to run really because the things that I were seeing in my neighborhood that I know weren't happening in other parts of the city, other parts of Portland. So I live in East Portland. I live east of 205, and we've been living there now for about 14 years. Um, And when we first moved there, I'd lived in almost every quadrant of Portland before we moved out there. And, you know, the lack of sidewalks, the lack of structures in parks, really just how everything was built in that part of the city was so different than what I'd experienced in living in other parts of the city. You know, and I noticed that right away, but it really came home to me as a new mom when I was trying to get my kids you know, on a walk in a stroller, and I couldn't 
make it all the way down a single block on the sidewalk because there weren't continuous sidewalks there. And I'd have to go out into the streets and into the, you know, around the mud and all of that to, to just take my kids for a walk. And I and that made me angry. And I knew it was unfair. I knew what was happening here was different. And so I wanted to do something about it. I was I got involved with my neighborhood association. I had done volunteer work with my local Democratic Party. And I was kind of um, learning a little bit more about how the system works. And then the person who was my state rep decided not to run again. And I thought that was my time to, to jump in and, and really see if there was something I could do about this. So there was a specific problem that you faced that got you active mm-hmm. and it drew you in. So you made the move from state legislature to county commission, which is actually, you probably have a bigger constituency as a Multnomah County Commissioner. That's exactly right. My district um, for the state house is a part of my um, Multnomah County district, but I also have a, a much larger area now. It, it goes down all the way to Cesar Chavez and it, it's much bigger. So I think I was representing about 64,000 people in the legislature, and now it's about 200,000 people. And so did you make that move because you felt like you could do more in the area that concerned you by coming to the county commission, or you found it frustrating in Salem, or what, what got you to make that shift? I loved working in Salem. I loved the legislature. It's a very high-action high kind of place. You know, you've got this legislative session, whether it's five months or 35 days to really get what you want done, and that's kind of pressure is, is pretty exciting to work with, and you can get some big things done. I loved that. But... You know, you look at the issues that I think we're facing as a community today, whether it's housing, whether it's economic inequities, all of these things. These are things that the county deals with every single day. These are the problems that the county is out there solving with the programs that we do, the services we provide, the people we partner with. I wanted to be doing more of that work. And it's been so interesting because I've learned so much more about how government works as a continuum, how the budgeting decisions or the policy decisions at the federal level affect what happens at the state level, how their budgeting decisions affects the county, and the county is the one who's actually enacting a lot of these things. It, you know, I always say, like, if I ever go to, back to the legislature, I think I'd be a be- much better legislator because I'd have this broader understanding. But it's been wonderful to be able to work here in my county um, on things, you know, that are really impacting the neighborhoods where I live. Right, and you're one of five county commissioners, whereas there you were in the House, so you were one of 60 members of the House. How is the dynamic different? Essentially, you're a five-person committee, and that, I imagine, makes things quite different than in the House of Representatives. Yeah, in the House, you know, we are a legislative body, so we go through the process where we have bills that are that are put in by any of the members, by committees, and then they go through a committee process where they're voted out. If they have to go to budgeting, they go to Ways and Means, and then eventually they come to the floor for the whole membership to vote on, right? I was the chair of the House Energy and Environment Committee, so I focused a lot on uh, energy issues and climate issues. There were two really um, big bills that we passed while I was there. One was the Clean Fuels Bill, which added cleaner fuels to our energy mix and required fuel suppliers to also be doing that. And then um, it was the we have the coal to clean bill, which really gets coal out of our energy mix by 2030 and doubled our renewable portfolio standard. So I worked a lot on those kinds of issues. Um, Here over at the county, you don't have that same very structured process, right? So we'll have more informal conversations within my office staff, you know, about policies we might want to work on or things we might want to pursue. And then from that point, it just goes out in its conversations you know, with a, with one of my um, fellow commissioners about like, hey, I have this idea and maybe we could work on this or talking to a department. And the, the other thing, too, is there's 
there's four commissioners and then there's the county chair and each commissioner represents a district but the chair represents the entire county and is truly the administrator of the Multnomah County government we talk about like the city of Portland has a weak mayor system in the county we have a strong chair system where the chair really runs the government also a lot of the ideas of things we want to do really goes through the chair's office as well. But ultimately, it is the board as a whole that is voting on the budget and that votes on the policy and ordinances of Fort Multnomah County. So it's a, it's more about, I would say, the personalities. It's more about the kind of views and perspectives of the folks who, of these five people that I'm, you know, that are on the commission versus really working more of the the committee and the the legislative process in the House. Well, it sounds like you've learned a lot about government from being an elected official. Mm -hmm. What's something that is particularly surprising that you've learned that you didn't expect to learn or that you didn't, wasn't part of your notion of what politics was like before you entered it? So before I got into politics, I was in the technology field. So I worked at startups. I worked in, you know, as a, as a program manager um, in different software companies. And things move really fast. And they there aren't a lot of, like, necessarily rules that you have to follow. Um, it's just really about getting a product out and making the customer happy, right? And failing was okay because that was just part of the deal, especially in the tech industry. I think you, you, know, you kind of have to do a lot of things. In the political world, it's different, right? It's much more, there's more of a lens on what you're doing. There's more of a spotlight on what you're doing. And people are more afraid of failing. And I found this especially with, I mean, we've had some pretty high profile technology failures in Oregon. And people are gun shy, I think, about really making those kinds of investments. And it's much more common to take time to, to really work on work on something versus just like, let's get this done. And then and then we can fix it, you know, after it's released, which is sometimes happens in the software. It's more now it's uh, people are a little bit more cautious, I would say. That is a kind of classic difference between the public sector and the private sector. Yeah. Coming from the tech side, do you think that there ought to be more tolerance for failure in the public sector? Or, or you think that the process, the sort of slower, more risk-averse process is on balance beneficial, or would you prefer to see a little bit more of the private sector kind of sensibility here in government? I think that for me, it's very important when we're making policy to have an inclusive process that you have all the people that are sitting around the table that are going to be impacted that and that they have a role in helping shape the, the policy have a voice in that. And so I never want to skip over that piece of it. And I think that's something that I've come to, you know, respect about this process. And, and, and that's been important to me as we're talking about things, um, especially when it comes to things like environmental justice issues or racial or social justice issues, like making sure that the people who are impacted have a say in what's happening. So I never would want to speed up the process where you would lose that. I do think that that there can be a little bit more urgency or if I mean, the one thing about the legislative session is that it does kind of put a, an end date where you have to have things done or else it's not going to happen. You know, having a little more of those urgency, I think, in some issues because you don't you wouldn't otherwise have that issue. You don't have like a date where you have to release a product or you don't have, you know, an end of session like at the county. Right. So sometimes it's about making trying to add the urgency to the process. I also have come to respect the really big job that people have in um, doing the work of the government, just the daily stuff. And that's something that I've realized that is just a factor. And so I'm having more patience with that as well. Right. It has a big impact on people's lives, you know, all the way down to the sidewalk level, like yes. you said. And, yes. and that is, you must have a strong sense of the responsibility of that. Whereas in the private sector, you're putting out a product that either does or doesn't succeed. And there's not that same sense of social responsibility, I imagine, that goes along with it. That's right. Exactly. 
You're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast, created by White Tiger Productions. At White Tiger Productions, we create experiences. If you have an idea for a podcast, a workshop, or a show of any kind, we'll help you go from concept to execution. We provide creative direction and production support. We've got a podcast studio, writers and storytellers, sound engineers and editors, designers, videographers, hosts, creative coaches, everything you need to manifest your creative potential. You name it or even vaguely describe it, and we'll take you from dream to finished product. White Tiger Productions. You can do what you think, and we can help you. Visit us at youcandowhatyouthink.com and tell us what you're thinking about. What is something that used to outrage you, but no longer does? And most importantly, why the change? This question is interesting because I think that in the last three years, I felt a lot more outraged than I did in the past. And that's absolutely has to do with the Trump administration's policies that are really attacking a lot of the political views and, and really philosophical views that I hold dear around immigration, around choice issues, around, you know, just our role in supporting and being there for our fellow community members, right? I think that there's been a lot of attacks on all of those issues, on climate, on a lot of things. You know, I felt like I've almost had more outrage, but... We'll get to your current outrage. Yeah. How about something that used to outrage you and yeah. what you can say about how you got over that? I know. I mean, I think that a little bit of outrage is good because it's the fire that that helps the work that I do every day. Um, but I will say something that, that outraged me that doesn't anymore was I didn't understand how when you had like a Democratic majority in a body that you couldn't get all of the things that you wanted, like a checklist of all of your policy issues Um, and get those done. And I've been in the legislature when we've gotten phenomenal work done and a lot of work, but there's always those couple things that don't get done and people are like, right, you guys have a majority, why can't you just get it done? And being in there and working in government, you realize like, even though it's a Democratic majority, you have different perspectives within the Democratic caucus. And there are some more conservative or moderate members who really have concerns or questions about the policy that you need to work through and discuss. You have to, you know, even though you are in the majority, you want to get the perspectives of the parts of the state that are represented by Republicans and hear what they have to say. And because of that, and because that they're, because that you want to have those um, perspectives and discussions, and you may not just be able to like drive something through, it can slow things down or maybe you don't get to do absolutely everything you wanted to do. And I know that's frustrating because it used to frustrate me, but it's it's about the long haul. It's about the, the end goal. I'm less outraged about that now because I understand why it happens. You know, and I also think that we have to make sure that we're celebrating the victories that we do get right? There's always going to be that next thing that you can do. And I really think it's important to reflect on what you have been able to achieve, the progress that you have been made, the impact that that's happening because of what you've done, and really find some satisfaction in that. Because sometimes we get so caught up in what we still have to do that we don't take the time to do that. That's actually, even in personal life, mm-hmm. it's very easy to say, well, I checked that off my to-do list, but what's left? To be mm-hmm. driven by what's left as opposed to stopping and celebrating what has been accomplished. I like that. That's I think yeah. that's a good reminder for a lot of people in a lot of areas of life. And now we can get back to what outrages you currently. <laughs> and how do you, as a human being, but as an elected official, yeah. and as a person with specific concerns about the world, how do you manage the outrage that you feel and can continue to do the job effectively. Yeah, I mean, it's a balance. And I appreciate that you said, like, as a human and as elected, you know, I have two kids and, you know, my son, he cried for like two weeks after Donald Trump was elected, right? Like, he, he took this to heart because he had heard me and his dad talking about, like, 
how afraid we were of if what would happen if he would be elected. And so that was for me, like, we need to put it in perspective of, of what's really happening, but also make sure that we're taking care of each other as we're all dealing with this trauma. But for me, especially being here at the county and serving with the people I do who share the same values that every single person has dignity and, and deserves respect and we need to be accountable to each other in that. And we have done a lot of things at the local level, both here at the county, at the state level, to really push back against what the Trump administration is doing by whether it's suing them, whether it's funding things that they've cut funding for, whether it's making sure that we are just sending a very loud and clear message that everyone is welcome here. Um, That is something that we've continually done. And that's really how I'm dealing with the frustration that I have and the outrage that I have about what's happening nationally is to really double down on making sure that um, we're building the place here that we want to see and that reflects the values that we have. Right. There are tools available to you mm-hmm. to push back against things that outrage yeah. you. And that is one of the things that you know I teach American politics, so I mostly focus on national. Mm-hmm. The public tends to see national politics as all of politics. Mm-hmm. And what I hear from people who work in local and state is that there are plenty of opportunities, in fact, ample opportunities at these levels to do all kinds of stuff. Yeah. One of the things I'm most excited about that I'm working on right now is bringing preschool for all to Multnomah County. This is something that we've had a task force that's been working on it, and we released a report, and now we're really looking at, okay, we've got this report, we've got this plan. How do we grow this plan, and how do we make this a reality? So we're having conversations about putting it on the ballot in 2020, and I and it's such a joy to work on this because I know that in the long term, this is going to have such a positive effect on children and families in Multnomah County. And really, families are struggling to afford childcare, to afford preschool right now. But the benefits that quality early education can have if it's done in a joyful, culturally you know, responsive way, research shows that the, the impacts are unbelievable for the long-term success of kids in school, in their careers. And so that also, working on that kind of project is is wonderful. It gives. It's really about looking ahead and building something positive, which um, which I think we also all need to do when we're feeling outraged about where we might be today. You know, one of the things about a policy like that is that people are behind it. That we can see all the tangible benefits. The science shows that it's a good thing, but it's also cost money. How do you deal as an elected official? How do you deal with the resistance, the anger from constituents? who don't want to spend the money on certain things like that. I mean, that is definitely part of my job, whether it's me or, you know, the people that I'm working with. We are we have to make a case for what we want to do, for the policies that, that we want to bring forward. And for me, I feel a little bit lucky in early education because it, the benefits of it, they're concrete. And their research has shown that the earlier you invest in a person's life, the less expensive it is, right? So if we are investing in children from ages zero to five, For instance, when we're doing upstream um, impacts, we're being proactive in terms of the healthcare, the education, the way that we're um, focusing on their social and emotional development, right? If you're making those investments early on, that is so much less expensive than later on when you're funding a criminal justice system or you're doing critical healthcare um, procedures or treatments that they may need because they didn't have the right early. So really, the more upstream, the earlier we can make those investments, the more cost effective it is. So even though it costs money, it's a really good value. And for early education specifically, every dollar of investment has a six to 10 time return on investment in the long run for those. You say making the case, and you have summarized very nicely, and I'm completely convinced sitting here right now, but you also then, the task is to be able to communicate that case effectively. 
what are the challenges in the current political and media environment for taking that very reasonable case which you've just laid out, and I'm sure you have a lot of good uh, information to back that up, what are the challenges in taking that case to the people and then succeeding in making your case? I think a couple of the challenges are just to cut through all the, the noise, the other things that are out there, right? I mean, you talk about you work at the national level in, in what you teach. I mean, I think I, there's a lot of attention in the media right now about what's happening nationally, and especially with the 2020 election and Democratic primary and an impeachment happening, right? So finding space within all of that to have the conversations about these impacts of these these things that we want to do locally is is challenging, right? So it's finding the space to do that. In your experience, has social media been a good avenue for getting these messages out and cutting through? Well, I would say not just in not just for preschool, but really in in all of the you know kind of issues I'm working on or, or um, positions. I've really appreciated social media for having that direct conduit to you know people who are on Facebook or on Twitter or whatever it is. I mean, it's important. I think it's really important for elected officials to let people know what they're doing to make sure that we are kind of living up to why we ran in the first place. And so making sure people know that these are the policies I'm working on. These are the events that I'm attending. These are the you know things I'm supporting. And Facebook and um, has been a great way to do that. Twitter has been a great way to do that. I think it's a wonderful tool. I mean, we all know about the awfulness of the social media as well. And so that's kind of, you know, that's what the cost, I think, of doing it. And do you face, you know, have you had to face down the Facebook rants and the Twitter flame wars? Or is that kind of communication you're doing doesn't get caught up in that maelstrom of the dark side of social media? Oh, no. I mean, so I was um, the chief sponsor for a driver's card bill in the 2013 session where we wanted to um, make sure that everybody um, had access to a driver's card who lived in Oregon. In this last legislative session, um, they were able to, to pass that bill. We actually had passed it, passed a, a different bill, but a similar concept in 2013. And while we were doing that, we had awful people who were calling the office, who were lighting up social media. And it was a lot of racist rants. It was pretty hateful kind of things. And so we had to deal with that. Um, so we definitely have seen that happen. I mean, I think the thing is, you know, thankfully, there are also the people who support what you're doing, who appreciate it. And and that you have to kind of rely on that to balance out some of the, the things that you hear that are not nice. I always like when I hear people use the word balance, mm-hmm. because I think that that is essential to doing anything that's difficult. Mm-hmm. And you are definitely in a difficult endeavor. What do you do to sustain your sense of balance and your equanimity and your sense of purpose? Because sitting here, you seem like a very balanced person who is energized by her purpose. How do you maintain that? So I do, I really do feel like I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing here, like spending my time in a way that's, um, that really is fulfilling a life purpose. So that that does give me a lot of um, joy and peace and purpose, even on the days when I'm tired, even on the days that are hard. But for me, really, I mean, my family is my heart and my center. And so making sure that I have the time to be with them, to be there for my kids, you know, spend time together as a family and, and making sure that I'm protecting that space is really important to helping me then um, go out and do all the work that I do for the rest of the world. So what are the big challenges with life-work balance? I'm sure the demands on your time are practically endless. You learn to say no, right? I mean, that's sometimes what you have to do. Like for tonight, for instance, there's an event that I'm going to later tonight. There were two other events that I potentially could have gone to tonight. I mean, I also would like to see my kids before they go to bed. So it's a, so sometimes it's about saying no and just putting those kind of those those barriers in place yourself to see like I'm only going to be doing events two nights a week or once on the weekends or whatever you know whatever is right for you but 
somebody told me that when I was first running for office and it was great advice. I didn't really listen to it for the first like year, but then like when I realized, no, wait, you really have to do this. So I think it's putting those, you know, making sure you're, you you know what your own boundaries are and, and being um, solid with them. And then also sharing that with, with your team. So my staff knows like, I only want to do, you know, two nights a week because I really want to have time for my family. And so making sure that that's something that's kind of a shared value. I like that you say that at first you ignored that advice and then you learned quickly from experience that boundaries are really important. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I would be burnt out. I wouldn't be happy at home. It would be harder to do my job at work, you know, and it, and it just didn't work. It wasn't, it wasn't the right thing. And so I, I did learn my lesson. It's, and it seems like it's important for you not to get burned out. I imagine you could go back to the private sector and do okay, but you don't want to, or I don't want to put words in your mouth. Do you see yourself having a long career in public life? I hope so. Like it feels right. I want to keep doing this for as long as I can, where I feel like I am doing good and, and making the public, you know, a better place. And I mean, for me, it's all about, there's a lot of inequities in our society, in our community, right? And I am, and I really see the core of the work that I'm doing is really to to give everybody the same fair shot to provide opportunities for people who have historically and currently don't have those. That's really what I want to do, like in the big scheme of things. And so, as long as I can keep doing that and keep doing that with joy and enthusiasm, I want to I want to do that. Well, I think that's a great way to end our interview. I really want to thank you for sitting down with me. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for this. Well, that's the end of this week's interview, and that is the third in this winter's series of interviews with people who hold elected office, either currently or who have held it in the past, giving their insight into how it is that they deal with the outrage, the frustration, the difficulties and challenges of life in elected office. Next week, we're going to have the former mayor of Lake Oswego and also a former student of mine, Jack Hoffman. He's going to share his experience in that particular local office, which mayor of Lake Oswego to me didn't sound like it was that challenging of a job when I first heard that he had served in that position for eight years. And I certainly came to learn otherwise. And that will be next week's episode where you can hear about it as well. For this week, I want to thank everybody for listening. And of course, there's the song to get to. I'm very thankful that I have such a selection of musicians who are willing to give original music to the podcast. This week's song is actually by a colleague of mine, Steve Greenwood. He is associated with the National Policy Consensus Center, which is part of the College of Urban and Public Affairs. His office is one floor above the office that I have in the Koopa building on the Portland State campus. We first came together when he gave a guest lecture to my interest group's class. And in talking with him, I subsequently found out that not only has he had a long career in politics that has taken him from the 1972 Republican National Convention in Miami, where Richard Nixon was renominated, but that he is also a musician. And I asked him to give me a song and he gave me this one. And I want to thank Steve. And as always, thank you for listening. dark time, this uncertain hour, don't you cry, don't you cry, if you lost faith in your higher power, come on by, well come on by, it don't matter what I'm doing, you just give, give me the sign, and I will Come to your rescue, come to your rescue, I will come to your rescue, and you can come to mine. If the world
and I know what you're needing is just a reason to believe. So I will come, come to your rescue. Come to your rescue. I will come to your rescue. And you can rescue me. You know I've been right here for you all along And that's a fact, oh that's a fact If your demons, if they lie and wait Now take my hand, take my hand If you're grieving for some past mistake Now yes indeed, I'm your man Cause I see my share of bad moves and I got demons of my own but I will come to your rescue come to your rescue there's just one thing I ask you don't leave me here alone Elvis left the hall He ain't coming back But I will be right here to answer If you call And that's a fact Oh, that's a fact Yeah, that's a fact And I will come to your rescue Come to your rescue I will come to your rescue Come to your rescue Take it, Andy Come to your rescue, I will come to your rescue, come to your rescue. Yes, I come to your rescue, to your rescue. Come to your rescue, I will come to your rescue, come to your rescue. Yes, I come to your rescue, and I know what you're needing is just a reason to believe. So I will come to your Come to your rescue, I will come to your rescue, and you can rescue me.